Coming up next on Contemplate. The 27 books of the New Testament were already recognized, and they were the ones that the church was using, by and large, across the world, long before anybody ever talked about canonization. Long before anybody tried to look at which ones are the right ones, they were already using the 27 books that we use as the New Testament. They already understood them to be authoritative. That was Pastor David Robinson from Axe Church, and this is Contemplate. Glad you've joined us for part two in this study of the reliability of Scripture. Now, if you missed part one, be sure and check it out, because it's great. And today, Pastor David will teach us how the New Testament came together. So let's dive right in. Here's Pastor David, recorded live at Axe Church. What we do need to spend some time on is the New Testament, because that's where people say that there are issues with canonization. Dan Brown, in his best-selling novel, The Da Vinci Code, espouses this viewpoint, okay? Through one of his characters, he says this. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Not among them, those are the only ones that were chosen. But anyway, the Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible, which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. The modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man Jesus Christ and use his influence to solidify their power base. This is what he says. He claims this is a very, it's a novel, it's fiction. But he says it was really, really well researched. This is what Dan Brown says. Bart Ehrman, who we talked about earlier, um, he echoes some of these same concerns. Okay, He suggests that the power structure within the church chose which books to include based on what they wanted. He says this. This one form of Christianity decided what was the correct Christian perspective. It decided who could exercise authority over Christian belief and practice, and it determined what forms of Christianity would be marginalized, set aside, destroyed. It also decided which books to canonize into Scripture and which books to set aside as heretical, teaching false ideas. Then as a coup de grace, this victorious party rewrote the history of the controversy, making it appear that there had not been much of a conflict at all, claiming that its own views had always been those of the majority of Christians at all times. Is this stuff true? Because if it's true, that's a serious problem. So how did we decide what went into the New Testament. How did we decide which books were included? The church had criteria, okay? Criteria, different things, different rules for how they would decide what got into the, into the Bible, what we used as Scripture, okay? You have to remember something first. The church believed, contrary to what other people say, history is quite clear. You can read all the church fathers. There's tons of their writings out there, Okay? You can read all of them. It's clear they believe that the, the Scripture was inspired by God. So their criteria were set up to try to figure out what was inspired by God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, it says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul is saying what? It's inspired. The Bible is inspired by God. 
That's how we know it's Bible, because it's inspired by God. So the main criteria was that the books included in the New Testament had to be inspired by God. So how could they tell that? It's very important to recognize something here. Regardless of what Dan Brown may say in the Da Vinci Code, it's very important to recognize this. The church was not looking to make the canon out of things that they wanted to. They were looking to discover which texts were already inspired. They weren't looking to make something inspired. They were looking to discover what was already inspired. Okay? If you have a telescope, you know, back when a little telescope could have done this, and you want to look for new galaxies, you don't buy a telescope to make galaxies. Right? Telescopes don't make galaxies. They discover them. Right? So when we look with a telescope, the criteria of a telescope being that we can see things that are far away, we look through it, we see a new galaxy. We don't think we made that galaxy. We're simply discovering it and then calling it a galaxy. That's the way the criteria of the church worked, not the opposite way. There's just no evidence that it worked the opposite way. There's some fiction novels and some, and some intriguing uh, you know, thoughts, theories that have no basis in fact, but the simple fact was they were trying to discover so this was the criteria they used. It was pretty simple. First one's called apostolic origin. Apostolic origin. An apostle, the apostles of Christ, from Scripture, Matthew, right, John, these guys, and then including Paul, they wanted to know whether or not the writing came from an apostle or a contemporary of an apostle who was their protege, basically. They're looking for apostolic origin. Is, it, is there a protege or the apostle themselves? Okay, Protege is like Mark, the, the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark was a protege of Peter. It's well understood that Mark's gospel was taken from the evidence of Peter. Okay, Luke, who wrote Acts, which we've been going through, and he wrote the book of Luke, he was a protege of Paul's. So it's well understood that he gained his information from being around Paul and these other apostles. That's where he got his information. So this was one of the important things. You have to remember that Jesus had been with these apostles, and he had given them authority. We've gone over this part a number of times where Jesus gives his great commission. He says, all authority is given to me. Then he gives it to them to go and make disciples and so on. He gave the apostles authority, so they had this authority to hear from the Holy Spirit and speak truth. Okay, Early on, the church did not need a canon of Scripture. They didn't need a canon of Scripture. Why did they need a canon of Scripture? Because they had the apostles. They were there. The eyewitnesses were with them. They were preaching. Instead of it being, oh, we read from, the book, from Paul's word to the Corinthians here, Paul was standing with the Corinthians giving them the word. Okay, So it was a very different thing. At the time, no one was concerned about canonizing Scripture. They had the dudes with them. But as the apostles got older and they started to die, we had to think about, hey, which of these writings is the appropriate one? So the second one is recognition of the churches. That's the second criteria for canonization. Did the churches recognize these books as Scripture? There were a number of churches, right, in Jerusalem and Antioch and so on. And the question was, which churches recognized which books? What did they recognize? In fact, the truth is, is that the 27 books of the New Testament 
were already recognized, and they were the ones that the church was using, by and large, across the world, long before anybody ever talked about canonization, long before anybody tried to look at which ones are the right ones, they were already using the 27 books that we use as the New Testament. They already understood them to be authoritative. Okay, Those are the ones that they were using. The last one is content. What is the content of the book? What's the content of the text? When they test the text, do they fit with what the apostles had taught? Do they fit with what the apostles had taught? You have to understand that the apostles' teaching was authoritative. And so when they're looking at these texts to say, are these properly in the Bible, they would check against the oral tradition of the teaching of the apostles. Now you have to understand something about oral tradition. I, I, I'm going to get done preaching here in a couple hours, and you are going to remember a little bit of what I said, right? A little bit of what I said. If I was to then come to you some years later and say, do you remember what I said that day? You'd be like, no, it wasn't that interesting, okay? That is not the way they did things. That is not the way they did things. Oral tradition was incredibly important. They weren't like us. They could not just go to Amazon and download an ebook. They did not have libraries of books. Books were very, very rare and very expensive. So for thousands of years, especially among the Jews, oral tradition was incredibly important. They memorized, they were known to memorize large portions of Scripture. Okay? They memorized. As the apostles were teaching, they were memorizing these doctrines. They knew them, and they were passing them down orally. Why? Because they couldn't afford to have Bibles, books. There were some that were out there in the church, but it wasn't like everybody had one at home. So you want to tell them what Paul had to say? Memorize it. You want to know what Genesis had to say? Memorize it. In fact, often they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Anyway, you go give that a shot. We're like, no way, that's impossible. Well, not if you practice at it a lot and you need to do it. So this oral tradition was very important. So when they said, hey, is it consistent? Is the content consistent with what the apostles taught? They knew whether it was consistent. They had a very, very strong oral tradition. So those were, those were the three ones, okay? The three criteria. Um, an article on the subject of canonization sums up the criteria this way. It says this. So all of this leads to what was perhaps the prime criterion. Was the book produced by an apostle or under the auspices of an apostle? And does it obviously correspond in doctrine to what the apostles themselves taught when they were on earth as God's divinely appointed spokesman? There's your criteria. Okay, now here's the deal. Like I told you, the 27 books of the New Testament were already largely accepted by the churches. They were already largely accepted. Okay? The ones that were rejected were not rejected because people thought that they would ruin their power structure. They were rejected because they did not fit the criteria of being inspired by God. F.F. Bruce, a biblical scholar, wrote this about it. Okay, He says this, One thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired. What these councils did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. 
So let's look at some of these rejected books. I read you that quote from the Da Vinci Code. Right? He claims there are more than 80 Gospels that were rejected okay, by the church for these nefarious reasons. Now, first of all, um, this quote, like everything else in the book, is pure fiction and nonsense. I'm going to show you that, but I just want you to, to realize this. Okay, If we count all the books, all these extra biblical writings that be considered biographies of Jesus, okay, Gnostic Gospels, there's a total, maximum, 39, not 80 plus. So it's a pretty big math error to start with, okay, for someone who's well-researched something. And I don't have time to go into all of these, but let me say this as a general criticism of the claim that these were authentic writings and should have been included in the Bible, okay? First of all, the originals of these documents, of these Gnostic Gospels that were supposedly out there, are too late to have been written by the apostles or by their contemporaries, so they fail right there, okay? Wegner, Wilder, and Bach write this about the dates of the Gnostic Gospels. They say, the canonical Gospels all date from the middle to late first century, okay? Within a reasonable time of Christ's life on earth, okay? All Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're all first century documents, okay? They're all in the same century that Christ was in, written by eyewitnesses and people who were there with eyewitnesses, people who were talking to eyewitnesses. The Gnostic Gospels cannot be placed any earlier than the mid-second century, Okay? The earliest you can place one is the mid-second century. Okay, It is ironic, as historian James Hitchcock has pointed out, that elements of a profession that have for years derided the Gospels as unreliable history have now seized on later documents as reliable guides to Jesus' intentions. What he's saying there is this. There are certain aspects, or a certain group of people who have always tried to say, oh, the Gospels are unreliable. You know, Mark was written 30 years after Jesus died. How do we know that it's, that it's true? We don't know that it's true. But now, when these kind of Gnostic Gospels come back up, they were written a hundred and something years later. They're saying, no, no, this, this is good stuff. This is what Jesus really said. Why? Because it helps them with their point that they want to get rid of the reliability of Scripture. Why? I don't know. You figure it out. Why don't they want Scripture? You figure it out. I'll let you, I'll let you do the work on that. Okay. So, second thing is these Gospels are called Gnostic Gospels because they generally were colored by the heresy of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, we've talked about Gnosticism before. It was a popular heresy, even when Paul was around. It's a popular heresy going around. And the heresy was basically that there was this secret knowledge, secret knowledge that saved you. So you kind of had to know the, the secrets of the in crowd. That was kind of the thing. The other thing they said was that the body was evil, okay? The body was evil, but the spirit was good. And so things like Jesus couldn't have really had a real body because the body is evil, so he must have been just spirit. He was just God. He wasn't man and God. Things like that. These Gnostic gospels, Gnostic because they espouse Gnosticism. This was a heresy. Now, even if they were written close enough to have been written by an apostle or one of the apostles' buddies, even if they had been accepted in the church, they weren't either. They weren't written by those people. They weren't accepted in the church. So they missed the first two criteria. But even if they did get those, they fail miserably on being consistent with the content of what the original apostles who were with Jesus were teaching. Paul, you can find places, many places, Paul speaks directly against Gnosticism. 
directly against it. It's clear that it already exists and he's directly against it. So these things fail the test. They weren't kept out because someone was trying to keep a secret. They failed the test. They're poor examples of something that you want to hold up as Scripture. That's why they fail, okay? That's the deal with canonization. These books were included because they were the books that the church already recognized. So then later on, the church said, when somebody tried to bring in something like these Gnostic Gospels, they said, okay, let's get some criteria down. What are the churches looking at? Is this stuff from the apostles? Is it consistent with the teaching that we know we have from the apostles? Boom, okay, these are the 27 books. Good thing they were already the 27 books we were looking at. Done. Canonization. No conspiracies. There was not this great rift in the church. There weren't these people who were being burned at the stake or, or all these secret gospels out there that the church went out and found them all and burned them. Like you could do that. Like across the Roman Empire, you could find every copy of something and burn it all so that now we just didn't know where it is. And if it's true that it happened, how would we ever know that it really happened? Right? So, it's nonsense. They're conspiracy theories. They're conspiracy theories, and they're, and they're bad ones. So let's deal, because we're running out of time, I'm going to deal with a couple other objections about Scripture, and then we'll wrap it up. One thing we sometimes hear, if you get on the Internet, um, which, you know, I don't know why I do it. It frustrates the fire out of me when I go on the Internet and I, and I read things that atheists and agnostics say and so on, because they're just so bad. Um, Sometimes they're really bad at at thinking and doing historical work. But one of the things they say is that Jesus did not exist. He wasn't even a real historical character. Okay? Jesus didn't exist. That's a theory out there. You'll find it pretty consistently on the Internet. Um, It's just not supported. Scholars, historical scholars, Christians, non-Christians, atheists, agnostics, there is no debate among reasonable scholars about whether Jesus existed. None. We talked about Bart Ehrman, the agnostic, who's tried to kind of show these issues with Scripture. Even he says this about Jesus. He certainly existed, as virtually every competent scholar of antiquity, Christian or non-Christian, agrees, based on clear and certain evidence. Okay, so the Jesus doesn't exist theory, when somebody tells that we don't even know that Jesus really existed. Um, We have more evidence for the fact that Jesus existed than we do for the fact that Julius Caesar existed. So we believe in that guy? Yeah, we don't have any problem with that. What's the problem with Jesus? You don't want them, you don't want him to exist. You don't want him to exist. Okay. Also, by the way, there were other historical writings that aren't in the Bible, just secular historical writings that talk about Jesus. Okay, he's talked about in other writings. The Babylonian Talmud, Josephus the historian, Talus, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, all these people mention Jesus. Okay? He was he was killed by Pilate. His followers believe he rose from the dead. They follow him. It's all kinds of history talking about the persecution of these Christians. Okay, There's no question that Jesus existed as a real person. So we're done with that. Now let's talk about archaeology for a second. Um, let's look at John 5.2. John 5.2 says this, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now there was a time... When archaeologists said, this place does not exist. There's no place called Bethesda, and there's no places with five porches or colonnades. It doesn't exist. Therefore, you should reject this Bible because it's inconsistent with archaeology. There were all kinds of people who said, 
Inconsistent with archaeology, I'm done. Here's the problem. They got bigger shovels. And they dug down just a little bit deeper. And surprise, surprise, they found Bethesda with the five colonnades. You can go in, you can go there now, and you can touch all those colonnades. Now, the problem with rejecting Scripture because an archaeological discovery hasn't been made yet is that you don't know that it's not going to be made. In fact, that's the way lots of discoveries have been made. Lots of them. They've taken this and then gone and found the stuff. Consistently. Consistently. Um, here's what Nelson Gluick, okay? This guy's a rabbi, a Jewish guy, an archaeologist. This is what he wrote about the archaeological, archaeological evidence in the Bible. It may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries. Archaeology supports Scripture. We're looking for evidence, right? That's what we said. What is the evidence that this book is true? We found that it's been transmitted correctly. It's been translated correctly. There was no conspiracy in deciding which books belonged in here. There was a clear criteria for it. Archaeology has consistently not gone against Scripture, but proved it to be true, to be accurate about what it says about history. We're not just here spinning our wheels. It's the reason why we're doing this particular series, and I'm talking to you about this. Because if you're going to use this as a basis for your knowledge, you've got to believe that it's accurate and reliable. And there are people who are a lot smarter than me who are completely and utterly convinced of the reliability of this document. Those that try to suggest that it's not reliable who it's not really transmitted properly, whatever, they're actually in the way small part of scholars. Scholars believe that this stuff is accurately recorded, that the people who wrote it believed it was true, that they believed it did miracles, that they believed it rose from the dead. There's really no question about that. The question is, what do you believe? What do you believe? These people saw Jesus rise from the dead. They talk about it pretty consistently in here. You've got to do something with that. You have to do something with that. This book is about transformation. It's not just about the fact that it's true or reliable. It's about the fact that it will transform your life through Christ. It will make you want to do things that are right. Because you can never, you can never match up to what's in here. You can never follow all these rules. You can't do it. But the point of the book is it's not about you. Praise God, it's about Jesus. You could never do enough for God. But God's done enough for you. That's the point. That's the point of this book. That's why I'm spending this time explaining to you how reliable it is and why I believe it's true. And those aren't the only reasons, by the way. I just don't have time to keep going into it. I can tell you this, not only do I believe it through the evidence... I am convinced of it in my heart based on what I've seen God do through my own life. Forget just what's in here. I mean, don't forget it. It's important. But 
But that's not the only thing. What he's done in my own heart. What he'll do in yours. God can transform you. I'm standing here. Most of you are sitting here because of what Jesus has done for us. Okay? We read about it in here. We see it worked out in our lives. What do you believe? That's the real question, isn't it? What do you believe? With all the evidence and proof, we can bank on the fact that the Bible is true, and it all points to the fact that we need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. Now, if you still have questions about all this, or we can help you find the truth that changes everything, come see us at Acts Church this Sunday morning. Get directions and all the info you need at axcamus.org or call 360-885-9000. Hope to meet you this Sunday. Thanks again for listening, and be sure and check out the next episode with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.